0: Hello, this is Bradley Jester on the COVID Conversations with Bradley podcast. I'm here today with my guest, Riker Labby. Riker, thank you for joining me. Happy to be here. So I don't know about you, but for me, I barely remember when this pandemic started. It feels like ages ago. Time just doesn't seem to exist during this pandemic. I was wondering if you remember where you were and what you were doing when news first broke of the pandemic?
1: I remember very well because I was in Southeast Asia when all of this started. So I typically for work travel often at the beginning of the year. I usually leave right after January 1st and I'm often in Thailand, Myanmar, Cambodia, throughout Southeast Asia for several months. So I was in Southeast Asia this year as I normally am and I think it was probably in. I mean, we, we started hearing about the pandemic right away um, in January. You know, by the end of January, we were hearing it, hearing about it in the news. So we knew it was happening in China. Um, even by the end of January in Thailand, which is where it was at the time, we were beginning to see precautions being taken, such as um, temperature checks. temperature checks when you would go into the malls, when you would get off buses, they would check you for... If you had a fever, they would give you um, hand sanitizer, things like that, that you were starting to see even in January. But in February, then, that's when it started to hit a little bit in the United States. We started to get some news from home. And for me, um, I think, you know, seeing the spread, you could tell it was starting to spread. And it was, for me, it was most worrisome when I saw the news from Europe and Italy. Italy was obviously hit really hard in the beginning. and, And. I think it was february maybe into march time frame and for me having lived in italy for a year um and i sort of know the region i know northern italy it was hard for me to see that happening there um, in part because it devastated northern india uh, northern uh, italy and it was it was very it was a small part of the country and yet you know very quickly the hospitals there were overrun by covid patients so I started to worry when I saw that because I could predict and, you know, you could see that if, if it was happening there so quickly, what was going to happen in the United States and our congested cities and our you know, heavily populated um, cities. So for me, and I remember because I'm from Seattle, I remember actually being at a, I was at a meeting in Chiang Mai, Thailand of a, uh, there was a rotary club and it was right as the news was beginning to hit and I introduced myself as being from Seattle, Washington, and there was a gasp in the room. <laughs> because at that time, you know, the whole pandemic in the United States, it got started in the Seattle area. Um, so, uh, you know, early on, those first, first days and weeks, Washington State was kind of the epicenter. And so, of course, people would, when they would learn I was from Washington, from Seattle, they would often ask questions about you know, how things were going. But it was it was sort of during that time frame that um, you know we started to see uh, the numbers. Initially, they weren't they weren't skyrocketing, but you were seeing pretty rapid spread in small areas. And obviously, you probably know about the nursing homes, um, which is where it got got started in, in uh, the Seattle area. But um, yeah, it started to to really hit home in February, and then in March, I started getting more and more nervous because. I was in Southeast Asia where they were they were responding far differently than we were back in the United States and seeing the spread here and just the lack of, um, I'm now back in the United States, but the lack of um, seriousness or the lack of um, attention. I, I, I mean, it was getting attention, but we weren't doing anything about it. And that was, that was hard to see from afar. So yeah, I do remember the progression. You're exactly right. It seems like it's been a lot longer than the whatever, seven, eight months now that You know we've really been struggling with it um and it really has upended a lot of things including you know my own work routine etc so i came back uh in eight i think the first of april so i was in the region and i actually almost got stuck in malaysia Um, i was in malaysia at the time and had it not been for family members and various things um, that, that convinced me to leave early I might have been stuck in the region for a while because they stopped all the flights shortly after I got out, so I left and uh, was able to get back to the united states that's a that's a long story um, but it you know it would have probably been had I waited another two weeks i I, I might not have been, been able to get back for several months
0: That's a good point because I want to say it was the end of January. I think it was u s citizens traveling to China and then Chinese. Well, vice, like you back and forth, either way, you could say that was January when they issued the travel ban, and that's
1: correct. Yeah, it was the end of January when that went into effect.
0: So, that's interesting because I would have assumed Southeast Asia being pretty close to China, I would assume that we would have also had issued a similar travel ban in that region kind of around the same time. So the fact that you're saying that in April, you were still able to fly back, that is wild.
1: Yeah, it was, you know, it was, in my opinion, somewhat haphazard. Of course, you know, the the epidemic, the pandemic started in China, but it it didn't take long before it was spreading. And I think, you know, there's a lot of debate that's gone on about whether that, that ban um, was effective or not. And, um, you know, that's not for me to say at this point but I do think that it was interesting that we just put a ban on travel uh, to and from China and yet you know uh, there's a lot of evidence that that the contagion on the east coast actually came from from European travelers um, from you know people who were coming from from Spain and Italy and and those parts of of Europe so yeah it was I only uh, the ban for me was on their end so they started in, in southeast asia that's very interesting to me because southeast asia um there are 10 countries within the asean region that's the association of southeast asian nations and the five mainland southeast asian nations being vietnam cambodia laos thailand and myanmar they've had very little very little contagion the, the caseloads have been quite low and um you know, right away they, they, they took action, but I there's also there's a lot of speculation that they may have had some prior immunity in the region because of exposure to similar viruses. Um, hmm. I'm not a doctor or scientist, but but it's been it's been pretty clear that something was different in Southeast Asia and Vietnam in fact didn't have a single death. It's a country of ninety plus million people, and they didn't have a single death until late June. So you know, it was it was um, it was very interesting to be there, where people were right away they put on masks. Um, it's culturally acceptable there, and they often wear masks because of pollution. You know, out of habit, um, they also tend to do it whenever a family member is sick. They sort of are used to just putting on masks so that they don't spread germs to others. Um, so that for me has been, that's one of the craziest things about what I see and what I saw happening in the United States. And I very quickly was trying to figure out you know, what's the difference between what I'm seeing here in Southeast Asia and what's going on back in the United States. And one of the most obvious things was universal masking. And that I don't think can be um, you know, blamed for all of the spread in the United States, but it was pretty obvious to me that even though there was a little bit of debate initially about, you know, do we need to save masks for our essential workers, for the people in the hospitals, you know, some of that made sense, but it also made a lot of sense that this thing is, you know, spread through, um, you know, through the air, through droplets that that we expel when we're, you know, shouting, yelling, talking, singing, etc., and that masking would make some sense. So, that was an obvious difference that I saw right away, and uh, it was frustrating to me because it very quickly became a political battle in the United States, and the whole question of whether or not it makes sense to mask should not have anything to do with politics. You know, that's a that's a question for the doctors and scientists to address, and then for us to respond accordingly. Um, so that was a difference, and yet, uh, you know, I don't think that that the lack of spread in Southeast Asia can solely be attributed to those policy differences um, of which there were others as well but they're they're also in Southeast Asia they're used to having viruses like this it's it's you know more common they've had SARS they've had other COVID-like viruses in the past so it's a little bit more immediate to them whereas most of us in the United States we've never had exposure to anything like this before. We've never had to deal with, um, you know, anything beyond the flu that, that we're used to. So I think they were a little bit more prepared when it hit, for example, and, and news started coming out of China in late January that it was a fairly significant thing. People took it very seriously in, in Thailand and Burma, um, and then later in Malaysia where it was, so. Um, but yeah, the, the, the travel, I, I was able to get home. I had to go, normally I fly over to the Pacific. I go from Southeast Asia back to the West Coast of the U.S. And I had to go the wrong way around the planet because the flights were um, restricted at that time. And I couldn't fly through places like Taipei, for example, which is a common hub. Um, and they had, because they were so concerned about the spread of the virus there, they limited travel within the region but um, I was able to get back to the United States through a flight to London. So I went back through Europe and ironically (laughs) the restrictions that I I faced when I got back to the United States were, were very few. I got to to Seattle and went through SeaTac airport and nobody, nobody took any, you know, I had no tests. I had no, no serious questions about um where i had been in terms of my ex- possible exposure they just asked me if i was feeling you know some symptoms they didn't take my temperature or anything to me that was a shock because traveling around southeast asia i had to take my temperature to go into a grocery store they you know i had to get screened to go into to, to hop on a bus um, so those sorts of things they were pretty quick in implementing there and I think to some extent that, that may have had some effect in preventing that initial spread from happening.
0: Now, I just realized I forgot to actually introduce what you do for work. And I kind of wanted to touch on that a bit because I find it fascinating. If you mind, I was wondering if you could just kind of briefly talk about the nonprofit you co-founded, Zomia.
1: Sure, and yeah, it is. Um, I think it's it's relevant because I work with students, many of whom are affected by all of this as well, just like you. So uh, it was 2014 that um, a co-founder and I, co-founder's name is Kirke Acevedo, We started. It's it's not technically a nonprofit. It's a social purpose corporation. Um, we have a, a fiscal sponsor that is a registered nonprofit, but we are a social purpose corporation. So we're a corporation technically in terms of, you know, taxes and that sort of thing, but we have a social mission that we have to meet. Um, And we can legally, we can sacrifice profit in order to meet that social mission. So if we ever had shareholders, we wouldn't get sued if we are not maximizing profit, basically, is what an SPC allows us to do. So we started the organization to provide higher education funding. To students who lack access to higher education funding, and there's a lot of that around the world. I mean, there's a, that exists in the United States too, but most of the time here, there are loans that are, you know, available at reasonable rates to students. If you can't get scholarships, if you can't find other other sources of funding, um, you can typically find loans in the United States. Now we have a whole issue of. You know, our, the cost of higher education here is so high that by the time you borrow, you can end up borrowing so much money that it takes you decades to repay, and that's a, that's, a, that's a huge issue. Um, but that's more the cost of higher education versus the affordability of a loan. I mean, you can get loans in the United States for university education at, you know, five, six, seven, eight percent interest, which is very low compared to what you can find in Southeast Asia, where loans often can run 30% interest annually or more. Um, That's not even the the top end. So we started Zomia um, to reach students who needed financing for higher education. We initially focused primarily on Myanmar or Burma um, for various reasons that I won't get into now, but we also had some students from Cambodia. Uh, the co-founder was in the Peace Corps in Cambodia when we started the organization, and we took on a few students from there. So we provide uh, funding for higher education. We um, we raise the money all over the place, but uh, we have a website where people can uh, see our students and um, help support those students with a loan. They don't they don't earn any interest themselves. They don't get anything from it it's a philanthropic sort of endeavor um, action that they take by funding our students but we then piece together that financing from various sources we have a foundation that that supports students we have some businesses others that that, uh, provide funds and then we provide that money to students where they're studying in southeast asia Um, we have uh, about i think close to 170 students right now that we've supported So not not thousands yet, but we took some time to prove the model. Could we get repayment? What were incomes going to be like? In Southeast Asia, particularly in Burma, where we were focused, when we started the organization, things like mobile internet access, that was really rare. And they didn't have mobile banking apps. They didn't have that sort of technology when we started it. But we made the decision to start it because they were beginning to open up and we were seeing the seeds being planted for that sort of technology to develop and fortunately for us it has and now we have students all over graduates all over the region who are making payments back to zomia for on their their student loans via mobile apps so we don't have a physical office anywhere in the region everything is done um, virtually through our own app so we have an app that we develop but the payments themselves are often being made through their local banking apps um, to our accounts so we provide that funding for higher education get students through an undergraduate or um, about I think 20% to maybe even close to a quarter of our students are graduate students as well Um, and then they repay based upon their income when they finish so they if their income is high they pay back their loans quickly if their income is low it takes them longer um, but we wanted a model that would allow students to borrow money, but but eliminate as much of the burden that they felt when they finished school as possible. So, unlike my own student loans when I went to master's uh, when I went to um, graduate school, uh, we allow students to defer their payments for for various reasons. So if they don't have enough income, or they don't have, um, or they have expenses like a hospital bill that they have to pay, or a wedding uh, they can take deferments so we have a really flexible plan we want to get back as much of the money as possible um but we also wanted to eliminate that sort of stress that everybody feels when you're done if i have to take a certain job in order to pay back my loans and that's not the way it works for us you can take whatever job you want if it's low paying then it's going to take you a lot longer to get your you know loan repaid we take about 15 percent of income um no matter what that income is, is, as long as it's high enough for a student to feed themselves and house themselves, et cetera. So that's the work that I do in the region, and I typically, I only usually spend, um, I, yeah, it's definitely less than half of the year, but I'm, I'm typically there either once or twice a year for a big chunk of time, so it's often three months at a time, and occasionally, um, in recent years, I've, I've done that once, uh, try to do it twice most years. So I'm, I'm typically there, yeah, between three to five months out of the year. And then the rest of the time I work from, from the United States. And we do have work here, too, and a lot of our funding comes through, you know, people in the United States. So um, I can do work really from anywhere in the world, but it's 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 nice when I'm there. I get to have more interaction with students and the universities that we work with. Uh, when I'm here, um, you know, it's it's normally the technology and the fundraising side of things that we're doing.
0: Kind of something I was wondering, so some students, they can defer for different reasons, correct? Like defer yes. their, their payments. Is that something that students are having to kind of
1: Very use much a bit so. more
0: right now? Yes.
1: Yeah. The, um, the percentage of, of graduates. So once you graduate from your program, we give you six months before we ask you to start reporting your income to us. And if your income is high enough, then we collect payments. So we have a six-month grace period after you graduate. Um, but typically in the past, uh, you know, we, in any given year now, we'll have dozens of graduates. Um, and typically, you know, if we had two or three students who were graduates who were in deferment at any point in time, that was, that was normal. So we, you know, we might have one or two who, for various reasons, they either, um, we had. One student who took a whole year off because her mom had cancer and she wanted to be at home, not working, worried about repaying the loans. We gave her a full year in that case. Um, But a lot of times it's, it's, um, you know, it's health expense related, various reasons. But those have definitely gone up this year. We had a lot. We had uh, I think we've had close to three dozen to four dozen graduates this year. Um, But the number of them who have had trouble finding work when they finish has gone up. And we've had a few, particularly those in the tourism industry that have lost their jobs too. And that's obviously, you know, the, the number one sector um, that was affected in Southeast Asia, Southeast Asia tourism is a big deal in Thailand. The economy the GDP is roughly I think 20% of the economy is, is tied up uh, related to tourists and tour uh, tourism. So when you stop travel, that's a fifth of their economy that comes to a screeching halt. And a lot of our students, uh, in Myanmar, the percentage is lower, but it's still, it's it's, it's important. It's part of their uh, economy, an important part of their economy. And so those students who were working in jobs related to the tourism sector, they're the ones that have been most directly affected by COVID. And Thailand shut things down pretty quickly in, by, by, by the end of February, um, it was really, yeah, things were, very slow. I talked to some uh, some people who run a resort, um, and bookings were down. They told me 99% of what they were the year prior. Um, you know, so even within Thailand, people stopped traveling because because they didn't want to, to see the, the virus spread. And so that really impacted um, hotels, restaurants. You know, that those businesses were all affected in a big way. So yes, uh, the number of students. Number of graduates who've been affected by COVID um, and who are on deferment has definitely increased. On the flip side, those who are still in school, like you, like our students here in the United States, they have been, uh, in some cases, their whole world has, has, has changed because many of them are now online, like we are here. Um, I'd say, so we are in, I think, about 40 universities now. And I'd say at least half of them are. In session so students are going to school on campus um, but probably at least a third I, I don't know the exact numbers but you know a third of them or so are online only right now so you have students who uh, particularly all of our students the all but yeah I should almost all of our students are studying abroad so they're not in their country of citizenship And you Mm -hmm. can imagine, you know, when they're outside the country and all of a sudden their classes are online, it's, it's even sort of more challenging for them because they're not with their families. They're not living at home right now. They are still in Thailand, for example, if they're from Myanmar, Um, but they're taking their classes from their apartments or their flats and, you know, they can't go into campus to, to take courses. So yeah, it's, it's. Uh, Affected them. I think the the biggest impact to our our current students is the new students, because as you alluded to early on, um, if if you, you know, if you only have a little short period of time, then taking online classes, you're going to you're going to miss something. Right. If you're in a one year master's program or you're a new student just trying to get started in an undergraduate program to do a whole year off campus, you're missing quite a bit. And we had a we had two master students this year who ended up deciding not to start their programs because they were only one or two year programs. And if they're gonna lose a whole year to um, COVID, then they felt like it's not worth the expense. You know, I'm gonna wait until I can actually be on campus and interact with my my peers and, and you know develop a relationship with professors as you probably know, a big part of a uh, university experience is that, and it's also developing a network that you can tap when you finish. And if you are only taking courses through a computer, that network development is, is absent. And you're, you know, in addition to, to missing out on the social side of, of the university experience, you also don't have the same opportunities to develop a network and to walk away with, you know, a group of professors who know your talents, and know you personally and are willing to vouch for you as well as all of the you know the opportunities that arise if you're on campus with job fairs and career um, development opportunities, those sorts of things. So we had several students, several new students who decided not to start their programs this year because of COVID and we have a couple who could not travel to their the, the country where they wanted to study, so they're working from home. Um, and one specific case I'm thinking of is a student who was, was headed to Hong Kong, he got into a great program, got a good scholarship, and he couldn't go to Hong Kong. So he's stuck in Myanmar right now, where internet access is it's better, but still, you know, high speed internet is, is not um, as, as common there as it is in, in other parts of the world. Now, it is five to 10 years ago, this would have devastated the, the university students in Myanmar because they just didn't have internet access. Today, because of their mobile phones, they do. So at least they have decent access now. Um, we can reach almost all of our graduates and students, even though, um, you know, we're not physically present there. We can we can usually get them through um, internet connections and in their mobile phones. They tend to use their mobile phones as hotspots there. So they, they don't often have Wi-Fi the way we do in every, you know, every restaurant. And um, I think most universities do have you know, campus-wide Wi-Fi. But when students are off campus, uh, it's not quite as common that a coffee shop will have a good... A good internet connection so they're often using their mobile their mobile devices but the, the, everybody there has them too i think mobile phones um, in the united states uh, most students will have computers laptops that's still not the norm there a lot of students do but it's not sort of a given that you'll have a laptop but everybody has a smartphone there so that's at least um, a way and data is cheaper they are often not paying much at all for you know um, data on their on their mobile plans whereas here that's one of the things when i come back to the united states i'm always floored at how much it costs to have basic internet access on my mobile device versus southeast asia where i can get all the data i need for you know uh, dollars um, a week or a month so anyway it it has definitely affected students they we've had you know individual cases where it's been a struggle and you get into the mental health side of it and uh, we have seen that directly with a few of our students where um, this has been a hard thing to cope with so and i think it's for our students it's particularly hard because they are away from their their families so we have one actually the student that i'm most concerned about right now is not suffering from covid but she has um, it's called multidrug resistant tuberculosis. So you've probably, you probably probably know a little bit about TB. Regular tuberculosis mm-hmm. can be treated, um, and it's normally treatable. There are four four main drugs that, for many decades, have been used to treat TB. But over the years, the it, it mutated, and there's a new form. And I say new; it's it's been around for decades as well, but the tuberculosis developed um, immunity or you know was resistant to the four main drugs used to treat it so we have a student who has this form of it and she is stuck in thailand right now all by herself she doesn't have her parents can't cross the border from myanmar because of travel restrictions she can't go home and she has a you know a contagious disease um, that needs serious treatment i mean she faces odds of with Even with the new drugs that the the World Health Organization has um, made available to her, she's got a you know maybe a sixty percent chance that she will live through this. So you know, a little better than 50 fifty, but she's twenty five years old and those are you know, not odds that you like to to see for a, a young person like that. So that's an example where CoVID prevents her from, you know being back with her family. Her parents, I'm sure would love to to, to be there to help support her. But they can't travel because of COVID. So they're stuck in Myanmar right
0: now. Yeah, I think there's I think that this is some this is one of the reasons why I wanted to start this podcast because I think when we think about COVID, there's so many things that this pandemic, so so many like facets and like areas of people's lives that it's affected that we would have never even considered before you touched on a lot of the questions I was going to actually ask you. I didn't have to even ask you them. Cause yeah, you were talking about just how like your students were impacted and stuff. Like mentally. Hey, um,
1: yeah. Let's get into that a little bit because I know that was, you know, that's one of the areas you wanted to explore in your podcast, uh, the mental health side of it. Um, and I know, I mean, from a, you know, I'll give you my personal perspective too on it because I, I really think that One of the, one of the, we should try to learn from this. First of all, you know, this has been, this is something that much of the world is dealing with and has dealt with in the recent, recent months. So I know nobody, nobody likes this. It's been crazy. It's been hard. Um, Obviously, you know, we have millions of human beings that have been affected by this directly. And, you know, the number of deaths is is creeping up. Um, But I think we also can try to, try to, to make a positive or something positive out of it if we can. And I think a couple of things that, that I think about um, at times uh, related to that are, number one, hopefully this will, uh, I think, um, get some people to to pay more attention to policy and to, to the fact that we have to prepare for this stuff. You know, especially we Americans, get we become complacent and we, we get into um, a mindset where Things just work, and, and we're going to recover, and, and we will recover, but we have to prepare for this stuff. And uh, my frustration when I was in Southeast Asia, my biggest mental health challenge was watching my own country flail and seeing my friends in Italy, doctors saying, this is serious. You people need to you know, take it seriously. And back in the US, I was seeing evidence that we were not taking it seriously. And um, for me, I think one positive, hopefully, is that people... Your age, my age—I mean, uh, across the spectrum—will realize that we have to, we have to, to, to take action before this stuff hits to prepare for it. And for me, there's a corollary here with the stuff that's happening environmentally too, with climate change, because I see the same reluctance to sort of acknowledge that we can, we actually need to take steps to, um, you know, prevent climate change from being the devastating are having the, the most devastating impacts, and yet policy-wise, we never do. We, the United States, it's too distant. All of our incentives are encouraging action today. You know, we, we re-elect our representatives every two years. It's very, very difficult, I think, given our system, to do something that won't have an effect for decades, but yet with climate change, we have to, right? We have to take action and prepare for the future, and I think with this pandemic, um, in my mind, and this, I, uh, you know, I was, I have been fearful of something like this happening for a while. And I travel a lot; I've lived in seven or eight countries now, and I was fearful that we, as a country, were going to have something like this hit. And the preparation that that the scientists and and even some policymakers know we should be doing, we weren't doing, and so we were, you know, we were terribly underprepared for this. But these sorts of these sorts of pandemics, given what we've done environmentally um, and given sort of the amount of of interaction that we humans have across the globe today, it's just there's a little bit of a I think a some an inevitability in terms of this stuff happening and we have to be better prepared for when it does happen and, and working to prevent it. and I think uh, a lot of the spread that we've seen, you know some of this was this was going to be a terrible thing no matter what, but I think we could have reduced the pain and then for for all of us too uh, my biggest complaint about the policy that i've seen in the united states is we haven't nipped this thing hard enough to say you know we're going to end it or we're going to really contain it to where it's not affecting us economically for years to come because if we keep having to, to close things down which we did again in you know in july we had that uptick in july right now it's really starting to look like the caseloads are going up again Unfortunately, the you know, the death toll in the United States hasn't been increasing, but we see that probably, you know, certain states are going to have to lock down or if not lock down, they may start closing businesses again. So this this whole ebb and flow of, well, we're going to open up, but not really take care of the problem, not take, I think, enough of the elementary steps to prevent it from growing again. And then we are back in the position of closing down businesses and restaurants you know, there are certain industries that I worry about right now never being able to fully recover. Um, so policy, I, yeah, I'm in a long winded fashion saying that I hope that this opens our eyes a little bit to the, um, the necessity of good policy and the need for preparing for this sort of thing. And again, for me, I also look at, at global warming and climate change and, and feel like we're doing making similar mistakes in terms of policy, not really doing anything. To prepare for what's to come, and there were a lot of people that knew this was coming, or something. You know, that you can't predict when. Nobody knew exactly, you know, what form it would take and how we would respond. But I can show you, you know, articles from from a decade ago um, from scientists and, and you know papers that were put out by scientists saying this is coming. And you know, I mean, we've heard clips of Bill Gates and certain others who also have warned about it. But um, I hope that. We we take it a little bit more seriously, and I see some evidence of that. Um, I see, you know, a lot of Americans now, because we haven't had to deal with this sort of thing before. Now they're, I think, realizing that we do have to pay attention to this stuff, and we do have to put people in power who, um, who you know, understand or maybe not understand the scientists, but uh, or the science, but at least you know, defer to people who have the knowledge and expertise when it comes to something like pandemic preparedness. The second thing I, I think uh, I'm, I'm hopeful about is that I think this is also showing us the importance of mental health um, and the importance of, um, you know, t- uh, taking care of ourselves mentally as well as physically. And I think we as a culture, you know, for, for a long time now, it's been very, um taboo to address any sort of mental health challenges uh that we we might have and it's you know everybody tries to be physically fit and we know that our physical health is important but mental health is just as important and i think this pandemic is proving that um you know that that that's critical and that uh, you know a lot of people right now are struggling i'm fortunately um not somebody who needs a ton of social interaction to to be okay uh you know, my work takes me across the world and I'm I'm often working solo or virtually with my team anyway. So for me to be at home for days at a time working from home, that wasn't a huge mental stress to me. But for some people, that's, you know, that's been a big stress. And I don't have children of my own. I can see with my sisters who do have kids that, you know, this sort of um, situation has really put a lot of stress on, on people. So. Realizing that it's necessary for all of us to take time to take care of ourselves and to, you know, to be conscious of how we're doing mentally. How are we processing this stuff? Do we need to take time you know, away from the news because COVID news is overwhelming? Those sorts of questions, I think, are legitimate and that, you know, we as a culture should be more willing to talk about and address um, those sorts of mental health challenges
0: yeah, thank you so much for speaking today. I, I think before we go, I was wondering, so if people want to sponsor a student or learn more about Zomia, is it just like Zomia.com? Like how can they um, learn more?
1: Z, Zomia.org. zomi dot, dot Yeah, no, it's it's all explained there. And if people are curious, um, you can definitely ch- check out our website. Um, all of our students so we, we post their profiles there and then you can read about you know what they're doing, where they're studying, those sorts of things. And if you are so inclined, you can help contribute to their to their education. Um, so yeah, zomia.org is the, the website.
0: All right. Well thank you for joining me today.
1: Very enjoyable. Good luck with the rest of your podcasts.
0: Thank you.